All right, everybody, don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they're located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. Ascentia CPA has a team of new-gen chartered professional accountants that are dedicated to advancing companies using expertise combined with emerging technologies. The team at Ascentia will implement the latest accounting technologies, allowing you to not only run a business, but to run a smart business that will excel in your industry. Their focus is to provide growth-centric, value-added, and timely accounting services for businesses, as well as individuals across Canada. Unlike standard accounting firms, by embracing cloud-based software, the team at Ascentia will provide you with real-time accounting information on a secure platform that is accessible anywhere at any time, allowing you to make better informed decisions and gain more controlled overview of your financial data. The reliability and expertise you will experience with the professionals at Ascentia will assist you in the preparation of corporate and personal tax returns, financial statements, bookkeeping, government filings, tax and estate planning, as well as business advisory services. For more information on the advantages of online accounting and to book a complimentary meeting online, be sure to visit ascentiacpa.ca. We are I. All right, everybody, we're sitting down with Laura Interlandi uh, right now, and um, 
she's a doula and we just for fish discussing about how I'll never remember all the professional titles that, that she holds and stuff. So um, I'm going to let her kind of intro herself because the, the laundry list is quite long. So welcome to the show, Laura. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's awesome. Okay, so go through that whole spiel again. <laughs> um, okay, well, I will say I am a doula a full spectrum doula with my own private practice serving families on Vancouver Island. I am also the co-founder of Birdsong Brooklyn, and I am the uh, dean of the Holistic Doula Certificate Program at Pacific Rim College in Victoria, and I'm also very fortunate to get to teach on that program as well. So you can see why I was never going to remember all that right there. So um, again, so okay, now we, now we understand who you are, but I want to know like where you started, how you got to this place, like who you were as a child, like growing up. And I know we kind of briefly um, like delved into that you were an actress at one point in time, but uh, like, where'd you start? Who are you? Who are you? Who have you been along the way? Well, <laughs> I, I did grow up on Vancouver Island and I do think that was just a foundational, is a foundational piece of who I am. Um, I credit so much of yeah, the way I'm able to connect to where, you know, where I am right now in this part of my life in, in a more rooted way to the opportunity I had to grow up in nature. And, you know, as a settler on this land, I just have so much respect for, um, that opportunity and I don't take it lightly. I spent, I basically graduated high school and like any ungrateful teenager, couldn't wait to get away from this magical place because I didn't appreciate it at the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then I spent 14 years in major cities. And I think that, that those foundational years in such a grounded, rooted place, if I had not have had that, I don't think Mentally and emotionally, I could have survived the intensity and all like the depth and the breadth of all of those travels and journeys. And it was a really eclectic and expansive 14 years. And I moved back to Vancouver Island almost full time. I'm here almost full time um, last year. And that's when I started working at PRC. But that it, there's been lots in between. And I'm happy to share any and all of that um, that you're interested in hearing about. Yeah, well, what are the major cities? Like, what, what major cities did you travel through in, in all those years? Uh, well, as you referenced, I uh, was an actor before I was a doula. So if I was to really divide the pie in terms of ch life chapters, um, performing arts was really my focus in high school. And... I also will say, I, I think because performing arts was my focus in high school, and also I do think because I was female and teenage girls really, I think, struggle with this even still today, but certainly when I was a teenager, I don't know that I took myself seriously as an academic um, in that phase of life. And I really did see it as an either or. I was either this artsy person or I was like getting serious nerd life and uh, you know that's something that's really changed as I've really embraced the duality of we were talking earlier before we started recording of like kind of right brain left brain and so key to be able to do that and doula work um 
So I, I left, I, I spent a little bit of time in Vancouver interning at a music management company. I lived in Montreal. I did one year of arts at uh, McGill and performed there a little bit. And then I went to Europe and did the classic one year turned into two years of very bohemian living, yes. <laughs> um, trying to, you know, yeah, be as cool as I could be cool in quotation marks, um, and reevaluated my life path um, in like an overdramatic, overwritten, you know, really self-centering <laughs> way. But had had those years, I think, were were important in the larger trajectory, and they were full of lots of amazing adventures across Europe. Um, and then I did actually, I came back here to ground myself and a friend of mine sent me, um, she sent me the casting notice for a CBC show. that was like a nationwide talent, kind of like a Canadian idolish thing, but acting, singing, dancing. And she knew I was getting ready, ready to audition for drama schools in, in, the UK and New York, and that I hadn't been performing very much and needed to kind of brush up. So I went and did that on a whim and ended up winning the vocal component of that. Oh, wow. And got some money for school, which was super helpful. And I also spent a summer up in the uh, Haida Gwaii working at one of the fishing lodges up there, which was a wild and magical, beautiful incredibly I'm so grateful for that opportunity um, and so I went literally from the Haida Gwaii to London <laughs> and arrived the day my program started oh, with wow. my suitcase went from Heathrow Airport because I was trying to work every last you know every last moment I possibly could to finance this incredibly expensive artistic education that came with no guarantee <laughs> <laughs> Just like everything in life, though, right? Yeah, true. And it was uh, like a kind of master's level program. It is now a formal master's, but it was at that time, it was a postgraduate certificate program, audition based and based in uh, Shakespeare and classical acting specifically, which if you'd asked me as a teenager, if I was going to go and study Shakespeare and be excited about that, I would have told you for sure not. <laughs> 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 but be careful what you wish for. So that's sort of my acting background. And then the um, the CBC show I did, Triple Sensation, ended up like popping back up because when I went to Toronto and tried to get an agent, and all every agent literally threw my headshot and resume in a, in the garbage can. Um, there was one person who literally fished out my headshot and resume from the garbage can. And the reason she did that is because she'd see she not only had seen me on that show, but she was one of the associate producers who was cutting together that you know they'd interview you for twenty minutes and then you'd have a thirty second clip kind of thing if you were lucky. So she felt like she knew me because she'd had to edit my section. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's funny how those little moments, right? I didn't do that audition for that show because I was trying to win or for anything other than to just have a place to practice uh, audition technique, knowing I had some more coming up. And yet I did get money for school. And I also, there ended up being this woven thread that had its own payback in this other way at another time. And incidentally, that person became my agent. And we are like dear, dear friends to this day. 
Um, we are, she, she came and visited me when I lived in New York city many times. She's shown up for me at so many junctures in my life. And, you know, I couldn't imagine not having even a friendship with her. So I, I think there's, yeah, these pivotal moments you don't realize that are in the, in the moment and then pay dividends far later. So, and those are the things that we like, we can't ever like explain about life or try to map out in life. And like, those are like the most beneficial parts. And I think like that comes from like what you've done is just experience life, you know? And like when we try to inhibit those experiences or like, okay, well I should stay down this singular path or like, you know, like this isn't what I should be doing. You know, like I should go to school and I should be this engineer. I should be this doctor. I should be this lawyer. Like we miss out on all of that journey. You know, because like things like you would never have, like, even if the only thing that you gain from is just like this amazing person in your life, like that would be beneficial to it all too, because like how important it is to be able to have that kind of support in life. We know now is like, quote unquote adults that, you know, like we can appreciate those things that much more because they are like our life's leverage to be able to see everything through. Um, I want to ask, cause you spent so much time in, in Europe. Do you feel like like growing up on like Vancouver Island, you know, couch and Valley, you know, like the whole experience is, is the slower pace of the Island and kind of like the, what, how the people are on the Island very similar to like the experiences in Europe, because I feel like Europe has such a different contrast than like what we even do like in Vancouver, but especially like in Western culture. Um, like what was some of the takeaways that you still have present in your life now from all the time that you spent growing up in Europe? Well, I, I was actually born in Northern England and I moved to Vancouver Island when I was one. So I didn't grow up there, but I went back there many times as a child um, and was always very aware that I wasn't from Vancouver Island. Um, my family is very British <laughs> in there um, and probably, you know, proud of that and have their traditions and their foods and all the things. But um, the Northern English social vibe is something that is definitely a part of who I am and I think really different than the valley and that is there is like a grittiness and a realness and a kind of no bs-ness to um that's different than in other parts of England that have that politeness culture that f feels really repressed. Like, I mean, Northern British people are repressed as well, but, <laughs> but um, there's a little bit more, there's a lot of jokes, a lot of witty banter, um, an expectation that you will socialize and kind of get in each other's business. Um, more, more so than somewhere like in the South. And there's a hardiness as well. There's not like, um, delicate fra fragility um in the same way that sort of you know it's not perfect porcelain china cups kind of thing or you know it's it's a little bit more real and when i look back at my ancestry which i think is so so valid if you have the privilege to know who you are and where you came from in in your ancestral lineage um and not all people do have that privilege but if you're able to find out a little bit it will help unlock some of those mysteries of like, wow, I, I have always felt kind of like this, you know, and that's weird because there is, yeah, specifically the hardiness of the people of the North of England. I just, not that that isn't present on Vancouver Island in its own way, but there's just, um, yeah, there's something very real and like guttural that I'm very proud is a part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of other places in Europe, um, I don't know that I really lived in any one place in Europe long enough to say it left 
a lasting impression that I know of, but I am married to, um, a Sicilian New Yorker. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> we're really different. And his can I family, ask what the mob connections are, or is yeah, that well, none that I know of? But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there, there is very much. If you were to see like some of the Sunday dinners, and um, you know where we had my baby shower in South Brooklyn with all the uncles. Like I have two cousins, two first cousins, and. My husband has 28. 28 so, like, first cousins? First cousins. So it took me like three years of being married to him to feel confident in knowing who everyone was and how they were related. And, <laughs> and there's, um, I will say the seven years I lived in New York City made a tremendous impression on me as a person. And it feels like the, and, and part of that has to do with really seeing my husband and his family and the directness that, you know, absolutely, you can imagine New Yorkers, like, just yeah. imagine it and that is what it is. And <laughs> that is what it is. It's like all the movies and all the TV shows and all the books are, they're totally, they're right. They got bang on. A lot of accurate depictions. Um, uh, but the, the real positive of all of that is that I think a lot of progress can get stalled in peaceful places because with that contentment of a slower, peaceful place can come a lot of complacency and complicity in like continuing to keep certain systems that aren't really actually serving people in place. And as a doula, I really, you know, a really big part of the, of being a doula in my opinion is um, the social justice piece, the reproductive justice piece, um, understanding um, how different people are having different experiences within the healthcare system dependent on their intersections of privilege or discrimination. Uh, and that those are uncomfortable conversations for most people in the Pacific Northwest. I find there's a, my mentors in birth work from New York are most of them not white. And so what I have learned from them and what I learned from being in a city that's so diverse, um, in a, in an industry that people are having every experience on the spectrum, like, you know, black women are dying in New York City 12 times more often as their white counterparts in the year around childbirth um, across economic and, uh, and educational lines. And that's right. an incredibly shocking statistic. But that is shocking. Like, you, like barring outside of like socioeconomic background, like it's still yeah. 12%. Twelve times, yeah. Or 12, twelve times, yeah, twelve times. And in the in the UK, which is interesting to compare because the UK is a public health system, right? So it'd be easy to look at the United States and go, "Oh, well, that's because it's privatized," or put some kind of more emphasis on that. But that's it, it's five times more likely in the UK across the board if you are black to die in the year around the child around childbearing, including three hundred and sixty-five days postpartum. So. For example, just that's the the conversation about something like medical racism and inequities in birth is something that's like, I think, really hard to have here with people who um, are just, yeah, like get activated, right? And feel like, 
the goal of life is to be even keel all the time. And for me, the goal of life absolutely is to be able to regulate your nervous system, to be able to feel calm and feel peaceful. And I chose to move from New York City to the Couch and Valley for a reason. <laughs> I well, like it. what? Like that? Like you can't get much more contrast than that because you go from, you know, like Brooklyn, which like you said, like if the typical narrative is true in just the Couch and Valley, like outside of being Vancouver Island would be astronomically different itself. But on top of that, like you highlighted, you're kind of in the relative like epicenter of like political correctness and, you know, like, you know, walking on eggshells through life and, you know, like really kind of like tiptoeing around sensitive subjects. And but what I love about being a birth worker and what I have loved about working at PRC and the students that come through the door is that the people that are called to serve as doulas are here for those conversations. And they are choosing to become doulas because they want to make change. And the conversations I've had with, you know, the higher ups of the, of the college have all been um, so open and uh, embracing of how we can um, have, you know, a course that is both like very academic and really high. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, longest and most in-depth course currently available for doulas in North America and how we can go into the academia and we can also go into all the like esoteric, spiritual, magical, um, incredible, transformative, uh, powerful things that birth and crossing the threshold into parenthood can, can bring and talk about pos the positive of all of that and also be socially aware and responsible and use the power and positionality that comes out of being a really informed practitioner um, for good. And so it's, it's exciting to me to not, um, to, to embrace all of it. Like I always say, there's two sides of my job. There's a million sides of my job, but one of those sides is to minimize harm, right? So if I have a client for whom, harm might be on the docket because of who they are and what they look like or what their marital status is or if they're a teen mom or, you know, like some some aspect that you could see discrimination maybe take place. Um, it, minimizing harm is really important, and it, that includes equipping people with education and knowledge and options and empowering them to make choices that feel good to them. And then the other, you know, the continuation of that is to, like, increase the capacity for joy and expansion and transformation to occur. And so to be able to have all the tools in your toolbox, right, to know what is the CDC saying about birth rates for this group of people? What are What is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology saying? What's going on in the UK? And not just tunnel vision to like, oh, well, this isn't happening in Victoria or Duncan or Nanaimo or Vancouver or, you know, like, just, no, I'm sorry. We have to actually all learn from each other to be as equipped as we possibly could be. And also it is happening in peaceful places, really tough stuff. And if you look at the history of Canada and you really look at, um, you know, all the really terrible, horrible, tough things that at the time would have been really easy for people not uh, facing that discrimination to turn a blind eye from, I think we always are at this moment in society where we can choose to really see the whole picture and how we can make a positive impact. 
Um, or we can go, oh, it doesn't affect me, so I don't need to learn about that. And so I just feel like a lot of gratitude for the way that um, my experience uh, and the way I got really activated. I was not a political person. I will tell you, I was like, I had my head in the sand. I was just like, nope, nope, don't want to hear about those things. I don't watch the news. La, 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 la. And now I'm like so proud of being able to hold a level of activation without it spiraling my own personal mental, emotional health, right? I can still be present for those hard conversations and take care of my own well-being. And I'd really like to see a little bit more of that in this community in general um, because I think we can do both. As humans, I think we can show up for hard conversations and also remain like grounded and calm and take care of our own, our own needs. I don't think it's an either or. Yeah, see, and because the thing is, like, when you kind of look like how people are like educated and taught to be able to approach hard conversations now, it's not as in like such a direct fashion. And then when people do approach it as in a direct fashion, they have to like over identify with like how they personally feel about it versus again, like with the approach that it just sounds like you're trying to take is just listening to somebody, you know, and just participating in the conversation from like a perspective of listening and understanding like where they're coming from, because you also have the research behind typically where they're coming from, how they're feeling and more importantly, what they're about to experience. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and see, like, you know, like, those are, like, the things that I think are incredibly, you know, beneficial about, you know, like, birth doulas, but, like, as what we were talking about before, how, like, like, we can have, like, life doulas, birth doulas, death doulas, you know, like, we can have, like, financial doulas, like, we, it really can have, like, a pretty, like, open face to it, because, like, I just see it more as in, like, the bridging of information, you know, because, like, look at the, like, the stark contrast of, like, your job, like, outside of it is, like, where a woman, no matter what her socioeconomic background is, walks into a doctor's office, say like in Vancouver or Victoria or anywhere, for example, and is like, like, I'm going to give birth to this child. It's like, okay, well, see you later. Come back in X amount of weeks, X amount of months. And like, you'll, you'll come in for this one specific time. Here's this pamphlet that may or may not be relevant to you. You know, like it, you know, hopefully you have some friends and family for support. And that's kind of like where it stops. Absolutely. I think that, you know, we are, we all suffer from, you know, white coat syndrome, which is like that doctor patient hierarchy uh, ingrained from a really early age. Um, We've all grown up in the same systems. So we all have to do that untangling. It's not like, you know, I I have to do it all the time. Right. And even I learned a, a great quote the other day, which was somebody was saying, oh, after all this work I've been doing to untangle my own biases, right, and unconscious beliefs about these people, about those people, or about this, or about that idea, um, I still find myself sometimes really labeling and having to stop and um, choose a new thought. And the person that was commenting on it said, you know, the first thought that you have is your programming. The second thought you have is um, what you're doing about your programming. And so I think what can be very overwhelming in these activating conversations is really the idea that we all have to get it right and that we can't make mistakes and that it, you know, if you do judge somebody or you do this, then you're a horrible person or that, you're, you know, it's like we are all learning and unlearning and having, you know, really having to go deep, 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 deep within and, um, be self-honest about what we're bringing to the table. And that's something that I really do wish. And I think that that is work that is um, 
both explicitly and implicitly uh, a part of a doula's responsibility, whether, like you said, you're showing up to help someone in their financial life or their health life or their, um, I want to share with you, I said before, I promised I would share this, which is this last weekend, um, I taught, I co-taught with, there's an incredible instructor on the doula program at PRC. Her name is Michelle McLean. She is in Vancouver. It uh, has her private practice in Vancouver. She comes over every week from Vancouver to teach the doulas at PRC. Wow. And she's been a doula for 15 years. And 15 years ago, you were figuring it out. Like really, there weren't lots of programs and mentors and trainings and you couldn't back search the hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? So I give her so much credit. And she is the embodiment of what I'm talking about, right? She has private clients of tremendous financial means and privilege that pay her top fee and she shows up for them and she can stay on with them in their postpartum period for as long as they can afford, which some of these people can afford a ton of care. And then she also works with New Beginnings, which is a program that welcomes um, uh, new immigrants and refugees to Canada that might you might arrive in Canada from Syria and be pregnant. Mm -hmm. And how are you treated? And so one of the, you know, I love that like the doula is on the program and that Michelle is bringing that. She's like, yeah, you can do both. You absolutely can do both. You can show up for marginalized communities and make care and access better for everyone. And you can have your private clients that are paying the bills. And I, so anyway, I just always give a shout out to her because she's like foundational even to me, I haven't been a doula as long as her. She's just amazing. So we co-taught together. It was so much fun. And we did lots and lots of brain maps um, where we'd write a word on the board. And then we do like associations and then associations off of those to kind of really get out of the linear brain and just kind of go with a little bit more with gut. So I defined uh, the word doula as someone who shows up for other people at threshold moments, non-judgmentally, which is really important. Absolutely. To, <laughs> to everybody. Should be anyway. Yeah. Who, who wants someone showing up for them judgmentally? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't feel good. No, not um, at all. And I wrote the word whole, like W-H-O-L-E, mm -hmm. holistically. I wrote it like that because I think the word holistic sometimes has the connotations of only meaning like quote unquote natural medicine. Whereas, uh, you know, when you're a doula, if you're a doula long enough, like you absolutely will be at a C-section that's planned, you know, you will be. And that's part of the non-judgment. It's like there are, there's a time and a place for essential oils. And then there's a time and a place for, you know, a medical intervention that you, that saves a life in an instant and your ability to, to, not create a hierarchy out of birth, but really take each person's journey for what it is and be able to show up and treat all those people the same way um, is, is I, I mean, that's essential to me in terms of integrity. So I'll show you this picture. I know that our listeners won't be able to see the picture. Oh, wow. But we have things on here, like we wrote doula in the center, and then we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about mental health doula. So what if you go through a big mental health crisis and you need support that is holistic, that's considering your whole self? What about death? 
What about menopause? What about college for both the student and the empty nester? Uh, what about when someone weans from breastfeeding for many years? Um, what about birth control choices? What about pregnancy loss? What about social services battles? What about divorce or adoption? Uh, what about someone who's transitioning? Um, you know, they're, they're going through a gender transition and they need affirming or a coming out. I know some coming out doulas. Um, what about when someone has a hysterectomy or, or a medical procedure that is going to be really activating for them? So, yeah, I do think it's important to just look at life through that lens. And, and I love what you said about, you know, the fitness and wellness industry because you really meet a full spectrum in every industry. But, you know, there's people in the fitness and wellness industry that are very much showing up with that sort of patriarchal lens of, let me fix what's wrong with you. And then there are those people that are like, let me uh, show up for you to help you transform the way you feel in your own body about your own body. You know, like that it's so much, that's such a different energy to come at like personal training with, for example. Well, um, cause like one is masking and one is identifying. Right. And like, that's like kind of like the biggest thing for me is just like, you know, you have about 95% of the industry, if not higher, still going with the masking approach, but it's slowly planting seeds and like the identifying, because like, I think we just like, we are, we are coming there and we just happen to geographically live in an area where it's just a little bit more validated, you know, but like, cause like, I even see it like with you where like you talk about like the diversity of the doula and the many faces and the different avenues and like the first thing that pops into my head the programming side is like is that accepted by other doulas you know like saying like if this is the diversity because that would be stuck in their programming is that a birth or a doula is about birth you know but then it's just like well that defies the whole meaning behind like a doula is being like open to these possibilities and like you know, just like being there for support, because if you're there for support, you should be open and be there for support. Like you should be non-judgmental. And if you really carry that code, then you really are there for everybody at every juncture, you know, where you become more of like, you know, like the life doula where you could spend, you might be hired as a birth doula, or like you said, like a transitioning doula, but then you happen to be there for that person's life because you're just there with them to be able to help them through. So like, my question is like, obviously with like PRC, like you said, like the program is the most extensive out of like any program. Is this the, is this the reason why? Like, are you guys coaching people, you know, like they're coming into the bro the program down this road? Like I was saying, like, this is the way that we should perceive this is that it is this grand, it is this big and we shouldn't be so narrow-minded. And then also, um, is it still like heavily swayed towards a female presence or is there going to be like a male presence? Like just kind of maybe like throw like a little bit of like the background of like the program or just like where you see doulas now versus where doulas were and where they're going. I mean, those are all great questions. I will say the program at PRC is focused on pregnancy, birth and postpartum, the immediate sort of first few months after a baby. So um, it isn't, you know, it's 13 and a half weeks and 270 instructional hours, um, taught across 11 different instructors, um, which is, you know, really a very <clears throat> deliberate on purpose thing. Cause there's like a naturopathic doctor teaching anatomy and physiology and holistic, uh, or 
holistic nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but <clears throat> I do think this is the way that this industry is going. And I think there's kind of two or three people that come to doula work. One kind of person that comes to doula work, it just is hell bent on being a doula and they're just dying for as much information as they can possibly get usually through the lens of like the birth postpartum transition. Um, then there are people that are in other industries that aren't planning to say, I'm a doula, I want to be at your birth, but want the lens of doula work to apply to their own, um, their own field. Like in, in the example of a, of a fitness instructor, you know, as somebody who I call myself a postpartum centric full spectrum doula, because birth is, is amazing and it's magical and it's also very intense and can bring up a lot and can cause a lot that gets brought up later. Uh, but postpartum is forever. Post means after and partum means delivery. So there's no six week mark or 12 week mark. That's like imposed. Um, we're all, you know, your grandma's still postpartum. <laughs> And so, so then I just got a quick question um, to kind of throw in there at that juncture. Why does it seem like most doulas, and maybe this is just my distorted perspective, so I'll add that in there, um, seem like they stop and don't continue on with postpartum care? Because it just seems like a narrative that, I, that I've that i heard continually that, like, they stop at the birth. Like, that's it. Like, they feel like their job is complete, and these are doulas themselves, not perceptions of the industry. Well, I, I have lots of answers for that because that is, you know, something I would really, really like to continue to inspire change. And I do this both in the program at PRC, but also through my work with Birdsong Brooklyn. And I wrote a postpartum doula training for another organization called my, my doula part, my business partner, Erica, and I co-wrote um, the postpartum doula training for an organization called Carriage House Birth. And, and so I'm very, very, very focused on elevating. We do an Instagram challenge every year called Nourished Postpartum. You know, we do a lot that really centers postpartum. And one of the reasons we do that uh, is because even if somebody doesn't want to serve in the postpartum space for many weeks or months on end, um, we really think that postpartum care as a whole uh, needs to be elevated and it needs to be um, highlighted in and swiped in on prenatally. I also teach a class once a month at the Cowichan Midwives office that is a prenatal postpartum planning class. And that is an incarnation of a curriculum that Erica and I through Birdsong have taught in like seven different formats. Oh, wow. It is so hard to get people to talk about postpartum, even that are expecting a baby. It's like planning for the wedding and real and, and completely forgetting that you're going to have a marriage. <laughs> yeah, which like that's life, right? It is like I think people like you're so focused because that's the way that we're trained. And as you said that, it's like you see that at so many junctures. It's like, well, I have to get to college or university. I have to get to pregnancy. I have to get to marriage. Like, like what then I get to death. Like you, we have all these places that I we get, get to, to <laughs> yeah. but like there's no nothing after And in every single yeah. one of those situations for the immediate people around us. And for most of them, excluding death, like there's like, there's impact on us. Like we have to live this environment like after the fact, you know, yeah, and if, it's, we're, if we're not, you know, I heard, um, there's an industry leader. Her name is, uh, uh, she has a powerful name, Angel Phoenix Arsenal. And she said, she was talking the other day online about the, our pathological consumption 
of certain aspects of our lives, including parenthood, right? Like it, the pathological, just like consumptive uh, viewpoint on it and changing it to the idea of life is a journey, right? There's no arriving at graduating to like, that's all. It's great to have these moments. We celebrate and integrate certain aspects, but like, it's all part of a continuum and you absolutely, you know, we compare ourselves to other people all the time. I know I do, you know, that's the programming and have to do that work to step back and go, wow, that's not my story. That's not my either challenge or um, benefit or whatever. And Yet we do kind of all have, we create hierarchies in our minds of like what we should be aspiring to next. And while I will be the first to say I'm growth minded and expansion is like my purpose in life, um, I think it's got to be on both an X and a Y axis, right? It can't be just to get to the next thing, to get to the next thing, to get to the next thing. It's got to be. And I think that actually is the feminine perspective, is the deepening um, without needing to, like, have a trophy to show it, right? We've got the masculine perspective that's about whole, about structure and, like, the outward. And I'm not talking here about I'm a girl, you're a boy, or vice versa, or whatever. I'm not talking about the binary. I'm just talking about the energies even within something like t TCM, Chinese medicine, you've got the yin and the yang, right? We've got this direct and indirect. We've got this quiet and loud. We've got this um, spiralic and linear. And I think that when we can take a break from the linear, you know, pause the linear to go into the intuitive, to go into the gut and sometimes just make choices from that place that aren't based on what I'm going to get out of it all the time, right? Um we we find a different gear in our own lives and and it's so funny that you say that like specifically almost those words because i have been searching for any kind of identity to understand why i love to do things but i don't ever care about winning like i participate mm -hmm. in events and do things all the time but I've never cared if anybody's there to see. I've never cared about getting a medal. I've never cared about winning a trophy. I've never really cared. About, like, And that's why like, I always struggled with creating like an online presence for myself and like using things like social media because I'm like, it just never really felt like me because I never really cared about like the limelight or the club behind it. I just love banking memories and experience. So like, but like, because we have like this linear way of thinking here, it's like, well, you got to hop in this lane. And it, if you're doing this, it's got to be about the trophy. If you're doing this, it's got to be about the notoriety. If you're doing this, like you need the reward, you know, because like it just, but I've, I've always been searching for kind of like an identity, like with inside of that. So it's funny that you bring it up specifically in that verbiage, because it's something that I've connected with so much. Well, and that's such a generous share, because I think that, um, what you're also bringing up is that it doesn't uh, necessarily reflect, we all have that intuitive and that linear within us, that masculine and feminine within us, if we break out of gender, the gender binary. And I think it can be really harming for um, people to grow up with such a tight box around how they're able to express um, and there are really incredible people in the world that uh, have such a deeply developed gut and instinct. And um, it sounds like that is 
that's really beautifully developed in you. And maybe also because of the expectation to achieve, perform, like attain, uh, and those things, it's hard to see that like you already have all those trophies, you know, but they're, they live in you in a different way. And that's so valid. And it's also not to shame the desire, like, Hey, I want to get paid. <laughs> you know, like I want to thrive. In we got kids. cars to drive and houses to buy. A hundred percent. I have three kids. They're so expensive. My children are so expensive. And, I got and, three kids too. I know. I know your pain. I know okay, your pain. Yes. When I open my when I open my wall, the butterflies fly out of it too. So I, I get what you're saying. So I, you know, and and it's interesting because. Um, my business, you know, Birdsong is with Erica, who's also a former actor. And we both inherited that belief system that, you know, through being artists and actors that like, oh, well, you don't want to sell out, right? There's that harming narrative too. That's like, well, what if your amazing artistic endeavor really commercially does well? Then you're not an artist anymore. And it's like, what if you're a healer that is also really boundaried about your valuing of your time? And that is how I identify like this season of life with three kids, six and under, and like lots of bills to pay. I'm not flexible. I don't, I don't do pro bono doula work right now. I do pro bono other things that help. Podcasts. Yeah, I do pro bono podcasts. Yeah. And I do pro I do community-based classes that are really accessible and affordable and that like for example, my class at the midwife's office, it's 30 bucks. It's cheaper than one hour of my time one-to-one. And it is also like if somebody couldn't afford that, I would give them that, right? If somebody in my community, when when someone in my community has a miscarriage or somebody in my community has something going on, like you you bet I show up in in a way that has no expectation of a financial reward. But when someone comes to my website and says, I want you as my doula, I'm like, cool, this is how much it costs. This is when I take my deposit. This is when I take the remainder of the balance. And these are the boundaries therein. And here's an actual contract that we will for sure sign. Because that structure really creates um, safety for both parties to know what they're getting and what they're giving and uh, makes it possible to build trust and not feel that um, those stickies, right, of, of, oh, I don't really know what my doula said she was available for and can I call her at 3 a.m. or I'm feeling like I might need this or I don't know if this is included in the package. Like, and the relief when my, when my clients or potential clients hear me say, oh gosh, I, I have no problem talking about money. So if you have a question, just go for it. It's not a big deal. Like I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with awkward. Like go that's, for that's it. The, that's the Brooklyn in you right there. It's just like, show me the money. You know, yeah. but like, yeah, but like don't have, but like the thing is though, like the, I think like the key takeaway from that is though, is like you connect enough with like your empathy and your compassion and your humanity to understand like there's a human level to things, but then there's also this literal component. Like, you know, when the bank wants to withdraw the money for your mortgage, it needs to be there. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm still trying to get to mortgage level, man. 
<laughs> yeah, but I just, I, I just mean, you know, like it's, it's one of those things where like we have to, yeah, like we have to live in that lane to some extent, but like it's the people who don't ever live outside that, like where we miss because like really like that just always goes to show me that you, you literally have no compassion for yourself. If you can't have compassion for another human being, you clearly aren't living that, li- that life yourself because you, I don't really feel like that's singular or it's just like you, you can't only have compassion for yourself because like compassion breeds compassion. Right. So absolutely. And there's, you know, there's also, you know, there really is an overlap, I think, with artists and with I'm, I'm using the word healer in a little bit of an overused way or a sort of very open way. But anyone who identifies with that archetype, who is in service of others, either medical, holistic, whatever lifestyle um, that, yeah, that you're not. um being authentic if you are, if you have terms and conditions and you know as someone who like i wrote a song for a movie and that song's being sold in europe and i don't get a dime and it i wasn't even i wrote the title track for that movie and i you know for free i wrote it the title track for that um film and not only do i not make like a cent anytime it's sold. Um, I also wasn't even featured on the cover of the album uh, that had like some bigger bands at the time uh, that, but I wrote the title song. Right. And well, I, why didn't, is that like, well, like what happened? Like, it's just I didn't they... know how to self advocate at the time. I just oh. thought, you know, and, and you get fed these narratives. This happens online too. When people have an, an Instagram presence or they're an in quote unquote influencer, um, where companies will come to you and they'll say, I have a great opportunity for you. Mm. I, you know, I'm going to take your product and put it on my page. You just have to give me this for free. Right. And you think, Oh wow, what a great opportunity for me. Cause you're not seeing your value. And so something that like Erica and I are really uh, boundaried about and really strong about is our intellectual and creative property. Like if someone wants us to consult on something, you know, that's one thing. And there's a corporate consulting rate, which is very different than a doula rate. That's one-to-one or community class rate. Those are all three different things because it does matter if you're going to take this information that I'm going to give you and you're going to go and like make a business out of it, or you're going to go and use it to sell your idea, or you're just going to straight up even take those words. Like you, I, and I empower, I would, I would really like encourage, um, anyone in the wellness industry really empower themselves to when Eric and I do a mentor, our mentorship program, uh, the very first week is called looking back, looking forward. And we do this exercise that is looking at all of who you are and all of the journeys that you've done. Like what was your childhood? Like where did you grow up? How has that influenced you? And also you're like anti-resume as in like, let's actually talk about the time you got fired and let's alchemize the quote unquote failures. And let's really look at all the things that seem to not make sense that you did that don't have like a place or a purpose. And let's find the golden threads between them and really have you start feeling seated in your value as a human being, because we all have so much value, regardless of what, letters come after our name. And so I think so to interrupt, are you yeah. really trying to tell me and sell me that it's okay to make mistakes? 
that doesn't seem real in today's time. Don't quote me on that. I don't want to be caught saying that in public. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, that's the part I give away for free so it doesn't come back at me, right? (laughs) Totally. I mean, really, and, and like what even is a mistake, right? Because there are people out there, you know, you've seen this with the fallout of the entertainment industry, right, of the Me Too movement and of all these things. It's like, there's these people that are holding these high positions of power that are literally the gatekeepers of who gets the job, who doesn't get the job that actually are shady, (laughs) that are actually doing really harming things and abusing their power. So why are we assuming that someone, because someone has a blue check, I always say, because someone has a blue check mark on Instagram doesn't make them an ethical human being. No, it makes them verified. It makes them a verified actual human being. And that's literally all. And so, You know, your what are we really aspiring to be? And I think that we need to just be aspiring to build our own code of ethics as human beings and our own uh, standards of integrity. And that private dialogue within is is the energy you bring into every space that you enter, and is you know I think the there's the informational knowledge that's so impact and so important and one thing i just to go back to something we said is if you are somebody who wants to be a death doula then it, it you know absolutely take take any doula training but really you do need to t- also take a death doula training <laughs> yeah. and i would hope and i you know i have lots of dreams about the ways that our program can grow and the different things that it can bring in so like stay tuned yeah. um but again but- too, like it kind of comes back to like like a few things there like i guess to kind of like pull a couple onion skins back is that you know you can tell your eastern approach in like a western environment because like you're breaking monoculture like you're saying, like you, like you can be an individual, but you don't have to be an individual as in like how outrageous it seems like individualism should be today. Like you can just literally be okay being a different person, but you still have like this kind of face of like normality. So there's that perspective. But like, again, to like where you talk about like being a death doula, just taking to the courses like in general, it's like, well, how do you understand death if you don't appreciate birth? Like I think it's critical. A hundred percent. I think, you know, when I really look at my origin, my doula origin story, it started when I was doing hospice care, death, I I would say probably death doula care, but I didn't even know what a doula was. Um, For my grandfather in England, I had this period of time where I didn't have an acting gig. And I knew I was going to marry this New York crazy New Yorker guy. And, you know, things were going to change in the next year. Where did you meet this crazy New Yorker guy? Like, like, it just seems like you're in London, you're in, you're in England, you're over in Europe, and you keep bringing it back to like this. Like, and it, I don't mean to throw you under the bus, but there, no, there was a there was a period. I actually spent four years based in Toronto, mm-hmm. and so those in those four years, I traveled a lot doing shows. Um, but I also, you know, I did some film work in Toronto, and we met on a film, a really tiny indie film that never saw the light of day, <laughs> but uh, but brought me my husband and three kids. Yeah. Um, and, it saw and, the light in the closet where it sits on the shelf. Totally. And we still have clips. Maybe at some point I'll, I'll pull those out and, and really, really show myself up. But um, yeah. 
I, I knew, yeah, I was just in this point where I didn't have an apartment. I like didn't have a gig coming up. I thought I might in the summer, but I didn't have one in that period had just enough money to kind of like buy food. And so I did what any logical person would do. And I went to England and (laughs) I stayed with my great aunt who had lost her husband the previous year. And I went every day to my grandparents' house and, um, yeah, I just was in the space with them for four months. I did like make sure my Nana ate, make sure she got to go to her dancing class. So I'd stay with my granddad while she went to dancing class. And then I realized now in retrospect that there were medical advocacy pieces to that. I mean, my, my dad's two sisters, my aunts were doing far and away, like all of it, basically, they were managing the care, but there were just moments where I maybe would talk to them before the public health nurse came over and just said, hey, maybe we should ask this question, or is this an option? Or, you know, there was just, I think my brain was already working in that way, a little bit of like, stepping out of that hierarchy of like, oh, you're the healthcare professional and I'm the patient. Mm -hmm. And we just take everything you say at face value and we don't want to be rude or rock the boat. There was a part of me that was like, hey, like this is, you know, this is a bit, there's a bigger picture here. There's quality of life things here. There's like. I actually have a really hard time because I have a few experiences of my own where dealing with like healthcare professionals where like as soon as there's any kind of like, you know, like, is there another option, you know, like, like, you know, like questioning, you know, like certain practices or just like supplying information where like you just instantly get shut down or like the offense that's taken in the environment like that, like, who are you to like question, like what I have to say, you know, kind of narrative or feeling or tone that's in the air. And I think that's something that like we in Western culture, like experience a lot. And I feel like there's a lot of other avenues where that comes into play, but it is astonishing to me that our healthcare has gone down that road because it's like, it literally who we are feel like we have to walk around in this body all the time. We know how we feel or like what you said, you're with your grandparents every single day. How are you not going to have a better perspective of where they're at to be able to relay that information on to be able to receive information on that than somebody who's just stopping in or appointment that they're going to for maybe five or 10 minutes? Yeah. And I, I mean, I saw, I, I, I feel like I quote a lot of memes, <laughs> but there's some good ones out there. It goes to show the demographic you're in. That's all. Totally. Yeah. I'm like cuss millennial. I'm, I'm 86. So like, I don't really wear that title. Oh, you're a Zenial then. I'm a Zen. Oh, wow. That's yeah. I'm a Zenial too. Yeah. Where you're kind of like, like pre and post technology where like, if you, the the thing, this is how they kind of identified is that if when you're taking notes, you really want to use a pen and paper, but you feel like you should have your laptop. (laughs) <laughs> so I a hundred percent because my business partner, Erica is, she's like a few years older than me. Um, and she always thinks like I'm the crazy youngster with all these notions about the socials, you know, whereas like I have a brother who's five years younger than me, who's so technology was really integrated into his life from a much younger age. And I look at him and go like, Oh no, you're a millennial. Right. And I always feel this cuspy sort of, vibe of like some people think I I know more than I do about technology and then I feel really behind in other ways but anyway the you know the interesting thing about yeah about like 
what the, the meme I was going to quote was doctor says, don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. And then patient says, don't confuse your medical degree with my uh, ability or my um, right to informed consent and also the right to use the greatest information tool that we've ever had to available to empower our choices. Yeah. And I think that both can be true because one misconception of doulas is that we're coming in hot, you know, like head on a spike, like against the medical industry. And, and that's not, that's absolutely not true. Any doula out there doing that certainly didn't train with me and um, isn't doing anyone any favors. And this is also coming from, like I said, my, my mentors, um, I'll quote Chanel Portia Albert, who is the head of the organization Ancient Song Doula Services in Brooklyn. And she's also like a commissioner in New York City and also writes, helps co-write bills. And like she's, and she created the Decolonized Birth Conference. Like she's serving specifically black women in New York that are experiencing medical racism, like, and, and dying at disproportionate rates as I mentioned. So she's in it as deep as you can be and as um, with the highest stakes possible, serving the most marginalized people. And even she says, hey, it doesn't serve anyone for you to get kicked out of the room. I can't, yeah. I cannot support you if I'm kicked out of the room. So if you're, there are moments where you do feel like you're pushing back against the system because what you're in some ways, what you're doing is you're pushing back that like politeness culture, right? That like waspy vibe of like, oh, I, I wouldn't dare rock the boat here, um, which is kind of the good girl complex, right? Or the good boy, good girl, good boy complex, which is very problematic when you look at something like reproductive justice, because we know that most women are survivors of some kind. Right. So there's a real spectrum of how care providers understand consent. Some people will say, I'm going to, I'm going to check your cervix now. That's not consent. Yeah, I'm, be totally I'm going to do this. That is said all the time, even by super loving midwives that don't, that maybe haven't learned that yet. Mm -hmm. And that's not New York specific. You know, it's not big hospital specific or, you know, toxic OB specific. There, there are certain things we've normalized. And then of course the, the client goes 90% of the time, the client goes, Oh, of course, you know, because it is awkward to say, I'm not ready yet. It takes courage and it takes somebody else to look you in the eyes and reflect back to you that your body is still your body. And I'm not talking about emergent scenarios where someone's life is on the line. I've never once seen a parent or birthing person say no to a life-saving procedure in a true emergency. But how many true birth is always emergent. That doesn't mean it's an emergency. And it's certainly not emer an emergency when you're in your doctor's office for your annual physical, you know, to well, be see, and, and like the, the thing, the number one perspective that popped into my mind is not the person that's like, Oh, okay. It's all like the silent agreement. Yeah, like that's really like the tough part, like where we just where we have like this intuition where like, I don't feel like this is okay, or like, this isn't something that I want right now, or like this situation doesn't mandate that I'm comfortable with this. But again, it's like, I have to go along with this narrative of what I'm told that's 
what's right. And I think like that is like the real perspective of like our healthcare system in general is that like when I don't feel like this is okay and that's just like a portion of that, but that's a narrative you hear all the time, you know, and say like Todd's a prime example of that, you know, like I don't think this exploratory surgery on my shoulder is okay, but yeah, I'm being told it's the only option you know, and I'm essentially a med student. I kind of know like where there might be some other options here, but I have no idea that there's like this whole other like acupuncture thing, Boulder, Colorado experience that's going to happen in my life yet. You know, but it's just like, like, why don't we teach people or like, like, I know that you're doing like this as in like adults coming into like a program, but like, why don't you think like when we get to be adults and we're just like, well, that shit was not the right way to go. And it might take us 20, 25, 30, 60 years to be able to get there. But when do we just decide to stop and say, okay, we need to start teaching our children this way? Because you could imagine if you're brought up in that environment, what world the world could really look like instead of us trying to change it as adults. Because again, then we're, we're stewing in our bias where we have to like first understand, okay, this is my programming making me react this way but I really need to come into my second thought and how hard that is because for one, people aren't even typically that aware of themselves. And even if they are, you're not even going to catch it every time. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think so much, I agree with everything you just said. And I, I also, I, I really appreciated Todd telling that story, like his personal story of how he advocated for himself on that episode. I did. I listened to that when Todd connected us um, the other thing I really appreciated that he said that I think is worth bringing up here, which is part of the problem, is that there are almost always, there are almost always some kind of alternative. And, but not all of those alternatives are fast and cheap. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said something about like, what it really means to rehab and like what it really means, even as somebody who is like, I know he is pursuit of excellence kind of guy, right? So that's hard for somebody who is used to being in a certain way in their body or able in a certain way or have certain um, range of motion available to them. Like that's a lot of like inner struggle when you're really, it would be so tempting to just go, give me the, give me the quick fast thing, you know? So and I think and that's the that's the beautiful takeaway of like when when Todd and that's the reason why I try to like approach it because like a lot of people perceive me to be that same way and I'm just like well no like like yes we can be like extremely goal driven but it doesn't have to be under the the same pathway of like what we're always taught that it should be you know like where you said like you know Todd's a really goal driven guy but like at the end of the day, I think the only thing that really allows you to be able to achieve your goals and feel at peace getting there is knowing that you got there in the most transient way possible. Yeah. And, and with that too, I will say that when we really look at perinatal health, right? So health from even fertility, let's start at fertility and actually, sorry, I'm going to pause that and go back to the second part of what you said, which was maybe we could just like start a bit sooner and like not cause as much harm that we all have to detangle in our twenties and thirties and beyond and not have to have bung surgeries and, you know, crappy doctors and, you know, make all the quote unquote wrong choices in order to find out we have rights 
and like we do, we deserve to be treated like experts on our own bodies, even if we're not experts on, I don't want any, I don't want someone unqualified doing a surgery on me. <laughs> That's not what I'm yeah. saying. But I do want to be taken seriously and have my concerns and my needs met. Um, and, and to that end, I actually have been speaking to my um, daughter's principal about uh, co-facilitating a curriculum around menstruation um, for really young elementary school people. And I was, I realized when we were texting yesterday that um, we need to actually take that out of the gender binary because anatomical sex and gender identity and expression are two totally different things. Mm -hmm. And we need to do that from go so that we're not like, let's have all the girls over here and all the boys over here. And just weird. We don't realize we're doing that. Come on, girls and boys. We're doing that stuff all the time. We're create, we're tangling those knots up for our kids all the time. Even as parents who would totally accept whatever our kid told us at 13, 14, 20, 30, they wanted to be uh, seen as. And we still, we still do all that stuff in parents. It's our first thought. And also we're tired. And, and also with that, I'm on the uh, sexual or what do they call it? Sexual orientation and gender identity um, kind of parent group for our school. That's part of the BC curriculum. Um, and with that, I went to a meeting at the school board. There was one male there. There was about 30 people. There was one male there. And let's be really clear about how homophobia enters like high school. And like, I mean, talking about like really outward, who's, who's saying those slurs, who's causing that harm. Um, I, and I have girls, you know, I have two daughters and a son. And so I feel like I, you know, it's not just about making sure my daughters know how to protect themselves and advocate for themselves. It's also making sure I don't accidentally raise a shitty guy yeah. <laughs> and, and holding him accountable for his actions. And also like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we teach everybody about birth and menstruation? Like wh what? Like, why are we, why would we only teach that um, certain body literacy things to little girls? And then we're just putting all the emotional labor on the little girls. Yeah. And then we're giving the guys a free pass to just completely ignore literally from whence they came. Because none of us would be here on this earth if it wasn't for periods. Because periods are yes. a sign for fertility and health. And so we, you're absolutely right. We completely need to shift that paradigm, like completely shift. And in terms of health and rehab and in, and body literacy and all of these things, because we, you know, obstetrics specifically has um, a very racist history and it has a, obviously a very misogynistic history. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand like the racist history. Like, like, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like, I can understand like the second part to it, but like, it's, uh, yeah. Like, well, there's literally, um, last year there was by that woman Chanel I referenced, um, there was a huge march in and protest in New York city to remove the statue of this famous, uh, obstetrician. Um, who did uh, groundbreaking surgeries that have developed a lot of things we benefit from today in terms of certain things to do with reproductive health. But he experimented on enslaved people without anesthesia 
for years and years and years and many, many, many black women had to die and that for those surgeries and, and procedures to come become developed and all, and then the people that ended up becoming the beneficiaries of those surgeries were mostly upper class white women in New York City in like the early 1900s. So, and, and that is also when you look at the history of enslavement specifically, the first known, um, the first known effect, uh, successful cesarean section that has been found anthropologically happened in the Congo. Oh, wow. You know, no one's getting yeah. credit there, right? It's like we have, and then when you actually look at the history of colonization and you look at how families were separated and how black women were forced to um, wet nurse their, uh, their owners, their, you know, enslaved owners, um, their slave owners, uh, children, and how that then displaced their own children and maybe had their own children, you know, there's, and then you look at right now the breastfeeding rates between black people and white people in America, for example, it, like if you're not acknowledging the history of colonialism and the impact of colonialism, you're missing a huge piece of the puzzle. And in Canada, we have obviously so many issues with our indigenous population, our first nations families, really high, um, really high apprehension rates for um, babies, specifically in the Cowichan area. There's a four times, you're four times more likely to have your baby apprehended. And, you know, does that mean that we shouldn't be looking at the, like, care that kids are getting across the board? No, but if we're not acknowledging that we created most of the problems that we currently see. Yeah, um, Which that, that's the truth, right? Like, because, like, that's always the tough part is, like, understanding where we went wrong, I think is absolutely critical to be able to help fix where we are going. But then too, to be able to understand where we went wrong, we also can't erase the past. You know, like yeah. as soon as you explain this story, I'm just like, wow, it's just like, you just feel uncomfortable. Like when the words are coming out of your mouth, you're like, that's really not comfortable to talk about. Like, let's just talk about something else, but it's critical that we do talk about it. And like, as, as much as I can understand the face value of taking down a statue, it's like, I feel like there's more benefit of, like, us being forced to face these things regularly because, like, what else is going to make us change? Like, if well, everything they, becomes so you know passive. They, you know what they did, though? And I will, I will say, I will tell the end of the story is that they took his statue down and they moved it to Greenwood Cemetery. I think it's, that's on the border of Queens. I don't think it's Brooklyn. I think it's Greenwood Cemetery. Um, and they, they put it in the cemetery and they, uh, have a plaque that says, um, you know, more historical context for, you know, yes, you developed these surgeries and also you did this really harming stuff. And the real reason that they were moving it from its location is because it was really in like a very, uh, highly concentrated black area up sort of in the northwest corner of central park harlem area and like we're literally talking about the area that it affects uh that is really like almost the most affected by this maternal mortality disproportionate disproportionate maternal mortality rates and so it was almost like wow how triggering for to if you're a black yeah. person if you're a pregnant black person you just walk out your door you're like i'm gonna go walk in central park boom here's this person being celebrated with no context so they did that kind of a thing of like hey let's take you out of like the limelight yeah. and not erase that you were a person in this uh, development of this industry, but really be clear about choices that were made and 
the way that you got to where you were. Um, see, and like I see like like something like that. Like when you're talking, like now, like I get it a little bit more. Like I understand you, like why there would be this move. But I would almost see the benefit of like a statue like that making um, like a journey through like like museums and art galleries, not just being plunked in a cemetery being, because again, if you wanted to kind of look at like demographics, like I, I would, I have absolutely no idea the demographics that actually attend like museums or art galleries. I just kind of like assuming what I see yeah, or whatever, but it's like, you know, forcing people to be like, you know, understand because again, like you can't expect change from the people that suffered like the the trauma from it like that doesn't make any sense also i see the move but again if it's in a cemetery that nobody is going to be able to force being forced with like the face of this past well that's not really yeah. beneficial either but if we took a, an approach like that instead of removing these statues and putting them where like they're still there but they're sight unseen all over again it's like well yeah like let's be faced with our past you know like this is this is how it came about like this is how we are created is something we need to understand like yes we understand the benefit, I say benefit behind it, you know, but like at the end of the day, we also need to be like, okay, well, how can we, we better this in the future? Because in 20 or 30 years, 50 years, we're probably going to look back at some of the things we're doing today and be like, well, that guy shouldn't be on a statue or that woman shouldn't be on a statue because it just doesn't meet the new social standard, but it doesn't mean that didn't help us get to that place. Right. Yeah. I've heard that. I've, I've heard that, um, perspective from a lot of people specifically since I moved back here because um, I think there was something that happened in Victoria maybe around the time I moved here to do with the statue that was removed regarding oh residents. yeah but I think it's a really delicate conversation and it I think for me where I'm at, at right now in my like looking at my own privilege and looking at like those uncomfortable things within in just having that dialogue within myself, I think what I, where I'm at is um, if somebody, if, if a black person tells me that that feels harming to them and that they don't want that because it hurt, it's hurtful to them. I just listen to that and support Absolutely. that because I, there's so many things I don't ever have to think about in my life because of the color of my skin. I don't ever have to worry did I get that job or not get that job because I work, because I look this way. Like there's so much, I just have so much privilege that if, you know, if a trans person tells me, Hey, I don't like it when you use that word um, or you, you misgendered me or something like that. I, I don't like, I just don't go further than to apologize and like trust them and do what I can to support them. So be, you know, Chanel is someone who's like, Oh my gosh, like mentor, 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 not just like a one time. I heard you speak once, like literally like I put yeah. her in my mentorship program. I trust her. I trust her. So when she gets behind something, I get behind something too. Yeah. And I think though, uh, what I, the piece that I take away that I think would it is it I'm I am I would love to do a large scale performing arts like um performance art piece um multi uh sensory like theater of cruelty make you feel it you know yeah. to feel it kind of thing that could travel around and bring up some of these hard things um because it, it's it is a balance between um you know erasure it doesn't um help us learn and grow and integrate. Um, but 
I think we need to center the needs of the most marginalized in certain, in, in, in certain moments when they're saying it. it's like, that's, that's a moment where someone's saying, I need you to be on, I need you to show up for me. Mm-hmm. And I, and so I, that's, that's where I do that. But at the same time, I would love to um, make people really uncomfortable in a public way. <laughs> well, and, but like, do you think that there's value in people who fit the mold, you know, in like the privilege, privilege side? you know, like just showing that humility to the, like the people like in, in like their counterparts, you know, because you look at me, I'm, I'm a 36 year old confident white male who was born in Canada. Yeah. Like, let's be real. Right. You got it going on, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, yeah, like, like, like how, how do you really understand? Like, yeah, really, that, like that's a huge, I mean, my husband and I have this conversation all the time and yeah. he, he comes from a really poor immigrant family who in the 70s, in late, his parents immigrated to New York in the late 60s, they weren't seen as white in the way I talk about white privilege. Mm-hmm. So when we get into these conversations, we can really go for it. Yeah. Because he, you know, his family, like the Mediterranean basin, like that level of poverty, like they were all born at home and not because it was trendy, but because there was no hospital, you know? (laughs) And so like, I have to check other parts of my privilege. I'm just like, you're just this privileged white cis man. Like, what are you? Like, I'll get all out. And then he'll be like, that's not how I feel inside because I was raised in a two bedroom apartment and slept on the couch till I was 14. You know, like uh, my family like came here with five cents and all had to change their names from this like weird sounding Italian name to this like homogenous Americana name. And like there's, so I've learned a lot from him about me just kind of like chilling on my, (laughs) on my pedestal. But I do think it's like, but you even look at like him though, you know, like from like his perspective, it's like what we all joke around with like, Oh, like the WAPs in New York, you know, riding around the outside of Dick Tracy cars and their suits with their Tommy guns, you know, like extortion and gambling and drugs. And like, just like, like, like they're living almost kind of like another side of it too. Like even like outside, cause I've heard that from like the Italian people that I know that grew up in New York. They're just like, I can't stand like people's first conception thinking that like my family's in the mob. And it's something that I joked around with at the beginning of this, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard that for sure. And I joke about it too, just because when you come from the outside, you know, it, it feels so like that culture is just so deep. And so, it, you know, uh, your association with it, you know, um, but it is offensive. It is offensive to some people. And, and there's certain words that are really offensive to some people. They call the Staten Island bridge, the Guinea plank, <laughs> but that's a word that is a racial slur. Wow. That is, that I've is, never heard that before. That is a racial slur. And that is very offensive to those people. And so, and you know, I laugh because it's such like an in your face. So sho- Yeah. It's so shocking. Yeah. And so it's like, I think that, you know, just being willing to put down your own agenda at any given time and listen to another person, regardless of your, in- and, and I think intersectionality, like really understanding that concept that someone could be white and not able-bodied, right? Somebody could be black and have been from a rich family and gone to Harvard, right? Somebody can be gay, but present in like a hetero way. You know, like somebody, there's all kinds of ways that we are, um, we perceive each other and it really all has to do with judgment and hierarchy. And so 
just doing any amount of inner work to see another person for who they are and the obstacles they might face that may or may not be similar to the obstacles you may or may not face and be willing to go past that first thought to that second thought and also to be willing to be wrong and to learn and to say, I'm sorry. Like I've, you know, you have to, if you're going to detangle, untangle your own growing up in a racist system, you're going to say something messed up at some point. You're going to, you know, and does that mean you should just never talk to somebody different than you again or avoid ever learning further about that? No, you just go, wow, like this programming goes so deep in all of us. It's not about winning the wokeness award. It's just about being a good human. And I I love like literally like how one day there is going to be a wokeness award. Like what it seems like it says, like it seems like something that should be like uh, sponsored by Instagram. Yeah. Oh, whoa, for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, there's something too that like everyone is at a different point in different aspects of the journey. So like, I will say for sure, sitting here across from you, this fitness expert, I hate exercising. (laughs) And I, what I was going to say before was that, you know, when we take fitness, when we really bring in the perinatal, um, perinatal health into something like fitness, what we have to detangle from the patriarchal notion of like a linear progression of fitness or get rid of that old notion of the bounce back or getting back. Never in your life are you going back. Whether you have a baby or you don't have a baby, you're never, ever, ever going back. So women should not be, or birthing people should not be uh, encouraged to go back. They should be encouraged. You've probably read that stat that female um, or pre- uh, people who are marathon runners before they have a baby can often have better times after they've had a baby, which is to me, like I think there's so much going on in the crossing of the threshold that is physical, but there's also so much going on that's mental and spiritual fortitude that, you know, you find out on mile 23 kind of thing about yourself. And, and we still have to really understand, let's understand what this physiological change is. Let's not center the male body here um, and, and assume that someone who has a, has a baby is going to just go on this linear progression. Let's really understand pelvic floor health. Let's really understand what's going on hormonally. Let's really make sure that all gyms and fitness studios and spaces have like a really dignified lactation space. So someone can like empty their breasts before they exercise or after they exercise. Let's really think about how we can make uh, fitness accessible in an, in a, way that centers where that person is and doesn't say, um, oh, you had your baby two months ago. Like, you know, why aren't you back at the gym? That really goes, how are you? How are you feeling? What do you need to be comfortable in this space? How can I support you? And, and so, and me admitting to you and saying like, oh my God, like the resistance that comes up in me when I think about putting on running shoes is like so immature. <laughs> so, See, but, but that's when one of the, the I think probably one of the most beneficial and um uh like the the part that's allowed for the greatest growth of me as a person because the one thing that I actually could not stand that irritated me the most about like my job or profession is that when I would go somewhere 
people would, the only thing that they could ever talk to me about was fitness. Like that was the mm -hmm. only value that I had like as a person, like let's say something to do with like fitness or like, well, I'm not as hardcore as you or it's like, but like, again, it comes back to like what like we identify with is because like not really identifying with anything that comes along with the industry. Like I just so happen maybe able to like perform well, or I look a certain way or present a certain way because I just like to do things that might just be like a little bit different than like what other people do, but like that solely encompassed my identity to the world. But like through like this podcast it, and everything, like people have got to see, it's like, Oh, well that's what Blake's always been talking about. You know, like with, like we're with you, it's like, you know, not putting on running shoes doesn't like identify like your fitness or your health and wellness strategy or protocols or, like, or anything at all. Because what I know now about health and wellness and like fitness, if you are a lot more whole in the mind, like, you know, like mentally, emotionally, spiritually, that like you are going to achieve greater physical things. And if you're ever just trying to suppress those things through physical means, yeah. which is like the fitness industry 101. Well, I really have, I mean, I'm in this phase right now where I know I need to center my physical health. And I, and the reason I'm saying this to you and being really forward and vulnerable with like where I as a human am underdeveloped is permissioning everyone to, you know, whoever's listening to go, whatever resistance comes up in some of those harder conversations, right? About something like privilege or something like medical advocacy or something like how we all got to be where we are or how we could show up as better humans in our communities and that feeling really hard or like you're going to get it wrong or that like I'm sitting here saying there even is a right way, which there's not is like, some people know lots about one thing and nothing about another thing. And that's got to be okay for us to grow. It's yeah. got to be okay to go, well, I don't even understand any of what you just said. And me not to be like, oh, you're a baddie, mm. you know, because you don't know that. It's like the, the, my role as an educator is also as a role, is also like my role as a doula. If someone comes to my class and goes, I have no idea why you, why you thought that changing this language would make this sentence better or this, I have no idea why this book is even on the reading list or you sent us this video to watch and, and I just felt weird about it. And I, and, and like, if you can't come to me and say that I failed you as your teacher, right? If you can't have that conversation where we can meet you at your edge and we can expand together in a way that feels safe to you, then I have failed you as your teacher. And it's still, it's important that you have some, if you never have any of those moments, I've also failed you as your teacher because I've based, I've not encouraged you to grow at all. But I don't want people sitting silently being like terrified to say something be, or ask a question because they're worried they're going to get um, ostracized because they're apparently supposed to be further along this path or they've never voted before. They don't understand why certain things are important. It's like, so for me, I'm like, I'm kind of like that with the, with centering the physical, I will dive into the hardest emotional conversation. <laughs> I will go so hard when it comes to mental health or other things that people are like, Oh, I don't want to talk about that. Or I don't want to do that inner work. But for me, it's really like that comes up when I put on running shoes and I get out of my head and I get into my body. And then I really realize all the stuff that's in there. Yeah. And, and so I say that to be very forward with, permissioning you you can only ever be where you actually are 
You cannot, you can't, you can pretend you know a certain word or you can dress up like you are a this or a that, but like it always comes out over time. And so it'd just be so much better. This is coming from me, the actress, you know, it would be so much better if we could like judge less and, you know, be, be available for each other a little bit more because none of us have it all figured out. And the guru complex is just, it doesn't do anyone any, any favors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like the, like the biggest takeaway, um, and also you, know, will you be my personal trainer. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. Absolutely. Um, the, the one thing that I really like about this, like this conversation and like the value that I find behind it is that like it to expand, like how people perceive doulas, you know, like you brought like a real human component to like really understanding like who you are and like, you're, you're fighting and facing like the same battles that like we all are because like, like, you know, you look at like comparative, like to us, it's like, well, getting in uncomfortable spaces, it just so happens. I don't, well, I'm starting to understand why, but like I end up in all these really uncomfortable spaces and opportunities of like challenge. And I'm just like, why do I keep ending up here? And I'm like, because I have the ability to be able to stand up and say something in those moments, which is exactly the same thing. Like what you're saying It's just like, you're not scared to have the conversation. You're not scared of the potential persecution. You're not scared to be able to give other people like the authority to be able to stand up in any kind of way that they can in those moments to empower somebody else as well. Yeah. I think, you know, when you call yourself a doula, you know, one of the things that you're really saying you're available for is challenging things because how can you show up to somebody's birth, right? Where they're going to meet edge after edge after edge. You have three kids, you know, you understand what it is to watch somebody, whether, I don't know, did you, did your partner have there have your babies like did you go into labor and go through the whole thing or did you have you know i don't know if you had positive or negative experiences but whether you have vaginal births they were nuts they were like nuts yeah like every possible like i can't even believe this moment is happening like yeah it was like they were they were traumatic like there was there was craziness everything from like like um you know like healthcare concerns um to like you know mistreatment you know like just and like just like it was it was one of those experiences where it was like you know um just through people like that I know and you know being able to like stand up like in those moments it kind of helped get through those situations and stuff but it was uh like they were by far from like you know because like I also know like you know like one of my friends Angela like she just had a baby she's like well I'm going into labor I'm gonna drive to the hospital uh you know her husband like you know kind of like meet me there she like she walks in the uh, door of the room three minutes later a baby's born you know third child you know it's just like you know like there's just like there's everything in between you know like those two situations right so yeah they and and there's there are the rare exceptions i call it the unicorn assisted orgasmic water birth right that everyone holds up on a pedestal as like every that sounds awesome i can you buy that because that sounds fantastic you hire a doula you're guaranteed that just kidding (laughs) just kidding all disclaimers aside also not every a lot of people don't want that a lot of people do want to give birth in a hospital with an epidural and go with everything their doctor says. And the reason they're hiring a doula isn't to avoid these things because they don't perceive them as bad, 
they are just to feel supported while it's all happening, right? Mm -hmm. And to have somebody there, you know, helping their partner, like maybe it's a long process and their partner, God forbid, wants to eat or take a shower or go outside and call family or, you know, whatever it is. So people choose doulas for all kinds of reasons. But what I was going to say was I do think we have an ethical responsibility as people who are saying, I'm going to show up for you at what is likely to be the most intense experience of your life and where you're going to go to like the depths of your soul and back and where you're going to, you know, they call it like you go behind the veil or you go into the center of the labyrinth and you get your baby. And it's like that all, that's all magical imagery. But you know, if you've been at a birth, like, you know, that if we're talking about like, you know, maybe goddess archetypes or, or just archetypes in general, like there's a reason why there are, um, like Kali, the destroyer, you know, as one of the goddesses, right? Like we all have both Ariel, the mermaid and Ursula, the sea witch within us. And yes. if we don't find it through birth, we certainly find it later through parenting because parenting is intense. <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. You know, dismantling the hierarchy of what people are going to need to access even within their birth experience is important. But I think as a doula, you're basically saying, I'm available for that level of intensity Mm -hmm. and, and I can be there in somewhat of a neutral way, but I'm, I'm not going to look away no matter what, no matter what happens, I'm not going to look away. And so to me, by extension, like a convert, a hard conversation about privilege is like nothing compared to like being at somebody's birth and like get you know, helping them expand their edge. And so I do think, the other thing, you know, maybe one of the, the last things I'll say just about doulas and doula work in general is I think that having that title also means that you have an interdisciplinary mind or that you want to. So I think that I've stumbled upon this as my calling and also then like my dad is a teacher. I grew up at a school. My grandmother was a teacher. Like it's kind of like my spirit guides or ancestors are kind of standing there going, wow, thanks for figuring it out eventually, that this is where you are supposed to be, like, duh, Um, is, and as an educator, you get to even go a step further with this, which is helping people make connections, and you making connections, and seeing why this might influence this, and see how this person's past experiences might show up in this seemingly different way, or how the dynamic of a relationship might manifest in a birth space, or how um, the prenatal care might mirror something that happens on the postpartum side, you know, or, and, and absolutely within that, like within the PRC program, the holistic doula lens, um, how different modalities can come together to create a toolbox that is really robust. And those tools can be physical, like a rubozo or a birth ball or essential oils or massage oils. But I I don't bring a U-Haul to births with me <laughs> of stuff to do to you. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I bring, I do bring a few things, but I, and same with postpartum, I bring a few things, but really what I'm bringing is like, um, to quote my, one of my mentors, Jackie Kelleher, head, heart, hands, you know, mm-hmm. I bring like, I, I bring a steady gaze and a calm presence and a really awake mind because I am listening for everything that's going on. Whatever the midwife is saying, whatever the nurse is saying, whatever the doctor is saying, whatever the vibe is, I'm keeping 
you know, so you can go deep and go inward. I'm staying very present and got the right and the left brain going at the same time for sure. And so I love looking at anthropology and I love looking at politics and I love looking at science and I love looking at um, spiritual growth and I love looking at all these different things together. And I think that's the beauty of of doula work is that you, you can fall in, you just get to fall in love with learning about stuff and it doesn't stop. And humanity, right? Like falling in love with humanity. Oh my gosh. I mean, birth is so, you know, they're the only guarantees are birth and death. That's really the only guarantees. So, and, and I think when you can have a support and actually when you kind of look at it, the the only thing that's really guaranteed is death because like birth isn't even always a guarantee, right? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it is, it really, 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 um, that humanness in all of us, it is the equalizing force. Yeah. So anyone can put on a white coat, right. Or anyone can say, uh, you know, anyone can add a certain number of letters to their name, get through whatever, but it's like, just, yeah, it's the eye to eye kind of heart to heart. Um, be what I, I think it's important that what you see is what you get in the world, you know, yeah, that, absolutely. that people are. And, and I think that that gets easier. The more of that, the more of that inner work you're willing to do to kind of like um, become aware of that first thought, you know, and go a little deeper and get that, uh, that inner awareness. Um, it serves, it has a rippling out effect you know, so all the book learning, add all the patches to your sleeve, you know, add all the, take all the trainings, do all the things, but don't forget about that, uh, the Y axis, yeah. you know, it's really, I think it's really, really important. Absolutely. Why don't you drop in for, uh, for everybody, like, like websites, social media handles, like email addresses, like the whole bit for, uh, for people to understand a little bit more who you are, do the research on you and be able to get in contact with you if they need to. Yeah, if you want to creep me on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) You say that like you invited, you're just like, do this as soon as we're done. Like, I'm I'm just stare at you like, come on. And then DM me about I haven't put your, how you haven't put your running shoes on yet. Yeah, and then and then shame me about how like I I'm slowly graduating to six (laughs) minutes of running um, three and a half years after having twins. Um, (laughs) I, okay. So I am, as I mentioned, I am the director of the, uh, holistic dual certificate at Pacific Rim college. So you can find Pacific Rim college on Instagram at Pacific Rim college. You can also, um, go on the website, www.pacificrimcollege.ca. I believe they have an online school and an, um, in-person school. And you can email me if you're interested in the program at PRC um, or learning in that space. You can email me at doula director at pacificrimcollege.com. And if you want to see my, uh, you know, the other side of who I am and what my business is, um, I am the co-founder of Birdsong Brooklyn. So birdsong, www.birdsongbrooklyn.com. And uh, we're on Instagram at Birdsong Brooklyn. And also, I buried the lead, but we just started a podcast. 
Really awesome. Yeah, That's so we're so on cool. like our, our sixth or something episode. So if you're a, a podcast nerd and you're here because you just love this medium, um, our podcast is called Tether Together, and you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. So Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, great for you guys, and I wish you all the success, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. 